You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. So you're a woman now. And God made Eve from the rib of Adam. And what, Carrie? Say it. Oh, Mom. Say it. Talk to me. Say it. Please, just talk and to me. And Eve was weak. Just, just talk to and me, please. I just, sin I just want you to talk to me. Was a sin of intercourse. And the first sin was a sin of intercourse, Mama. Say it. Why didn't you just? Why didn't you tell me, Mama? God Mama, please. It, with a it curse, hurts. And the curse it was hurts. a curse of blood. I'm not gonna say that. That's not even in the Bible. It doesn't oh, say that Lord. anywhere. Help this little girl see the sin of her days and ways. Show her she's made innocent. The curse of blood would not have come upon her as it did upon Eve. I'm not Eve, Mama. I didn't sin. You showered with those other girls. You had lust-filled thoughts. Everyone has to shower, Mama. Everyone. No, That's no, just the rules. Different. You must be different because he can see I don't see want you. to be different, Mama. I want to he be like them. I want to be just you, like and them. And he will punish you. <gasps> I will not let that come down upon you. Welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste Carrie Retrospective Series. You have a big week coming up. A big month, actually. Probably the biggest month of your lives. Join Garrett. I have a dog. Matt. Turn around, drop trail. And Adam. Don't they have anything good? Like some garbage? You like garbage? Oh yeah, Shirley Manson, she rocks. As they look at the four different iterations of Stephen King's very first published novel. This isn't over by a long shot. Come back periodically as one by one the boys go through each film adaptation of the popular author's work in the order of its original publication. That's great news! Where does everyone come down on the quality of King's work? They're just gonna trick me again. Why is Adam watching Carrie for the very first time? I don't want to upset you. And what is Matt dreading the most about this 100-plus movie retrospective. <laughs> Look at this! What? <laughs> All these pigs! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. And things are going to change around here. Carrie, released October 18th, 2013. Budget on this was $30 million. Box office, $84.8 million. And this was directed by... Kimberly Pierce. Carrie, again, here we are, <laughs> talking about this same story for a third, officially fourth time. I count The Rage Carrie too, but I kind of don't. Ah, this was coming out right at the tail end of a huge slew of remakes. Matt, were you excited when you heard that Carrie was being remade again? I was going to say yes until I was reminded again, because I was not aware of the TV movie's existence at the time this was released. So, as someone who likes the Brian Nepal movie a lot, as you can tell based on the review, I don't hold it in such high esteem to where I would consider it untouchable for a remake, primarily because of two things. Number one is bullying has evolved, taken on many different forms, more horrific forms, if that was sadly humanly possible. It'd be with technology and, God knows, 30-plus years of X-Men comics. You could definitely do a story about telepaths going crazy, because Lord knows the Marvel Universe is full of those. But as far as this actual remake 
when I saw the marketing and some of those things, I was sort of tapered off, but I was I was going to give it a chance because of the director and because of the some of the pieces that were at play. Well, let's not forget, this came out at a time a few years removed from when Stephen King had sort of had a resurgence in popularity. If you look at the movies that were released, I'd say a good five years prior to this, you had, you had 1408, you had The Mist. It seemed like a good time, and thankfully they actually were smart and released this in October, which, God forbid, you have a Stephen King movie that is actually set for a release for Halloween, even though... Whether or not this is a horror movie, we can argue about that till the cows come mm-hmm. home. Yeah, for sure. Adam, before I go to you, I want to touch on a little bit what Matt was talking about. You know, I think the thing that distinguishes this from, you know, when we had those remakes, you know, we had Prom Night and <laughs> and Stepfather. The step, stepfather, yeah. The When a Stranger Calls. These movies are, they were so deemed, and they uh, necessarily so, unnecessary. You know, they, they were just piss poor out there just to make a quick buck. This one... I had a different feeling about because of what Matt said, bullying at this time was in the news every single day. And Kimberly Pierce had already done a movie based on bullying called Boys Don't Cry, which won Hillary Swank an Oscar. She was against it at first, but the more she thought about it, she's like, you know, I can modernize this. Well said. I can modernize this. And I can make it into something special, something that resonates with a modern crowd. And say what you will about Stephen King, but bullying back in 1974, 75 is just as relevant now as it was back then. So I was excited for it just for that reason to see what Pierce could do with this, because this is a woman who she doesn't make that many movies. I remember Boys Don't Cry. I didn't even remember Stop Loss. I did watch it this week. It happens to be on HBO, uh, a repeated cycle this month. And so I did catch it. It was okay. I thought it was a little melodramatic. There were some things in it I did like. Joseph Gordon-Levitt puts in a pretty decent performance in that. And Channing Tatum's okay. But it's not really up there with Boys Don't Cry, which I hold very high regard. But that is not a woman I would choose to do a remake of a horror film. But we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Adam, you're the newbie to this series. You liked the 1976 version. We've had some fun in the previous two podcasts about this series. Mm-hmm. Going in, uh, were you excited for this at all? To see exactly what a new aesthetic could do with this? Well, eight years ago, I don't think I knew this movie existed. But coming into, coming into yeah. it now... Yeah, and we discussed last week a little bit, and you brought up, you know, I love Julianne Moore. I think she's an absolute, just astounding talent. Um, So her alone in that role was something that I was very much looking forward to. And our titular Carrie, Chloe Grace Moretz, I've not seen some of her standout work that she's really, really known for. However, I fucking love her in Kick-Ass. Absolutely fucking love her and kick ass. She is it, girl. She always will be to me. So at least the two top-of-line names that you had on this definitely got me more interested than probably anything so far. Yeah, we're going to talk about that casting as we get into this movie, for sure. And a couple other things. Kimberly Pierce is actually an alumni of Brian De Palma. She knew him way back when. She says she has partied with him, and De Palma has partied with a lot of, a lot of people. <laughs> so I definitely I can, uh, I can see that happening. She was hesitant. She was way hesitant when she got the call to do this, and it wasn't until a conversation with him and a few conversations with the studio that she took it upon herself to, yeah, I could do something different with this. And she decided to cast Glowy Grace Moretz, which, man, I have a lot of things to say about that casting. So, Matt, did you see this when it was initially out? Did you wait for video? Was this your first time watching it? Oh, I saw this in the theater. I have 
little to no recollection of it because, to be perfectly honest, let me jump in the Wayback Machine and talk about 2013. As a writer at the time, no matter what I said, I would piss somebody off. Between, I, I wrote a list of all the movies that I reviewed that got me some negative comments and <laughs> arguments with my fellow writers. Iron Man 3, Star Trek Into Darkness, The Great Gatsby, Man of Steel. Between those four, I was fucking exhausted. So I walked into that. I walked into this theater saying, I'm not going to please anybody. I won't even please the God himself, Stephen King, with my comments. So I was going to sit here, get a tub of popcorn, shove it in my mouth, and justify that as the way that I don't say a fucking word about this movie one way or the other. Yeah, on a side you note, mentioned... I think all four of those movies caused a rift between Garrett and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think 2013 pretty much established me as the guy people love to hate. And yeah, Adam was in that boat as well, because all those movies you mentioned, we were on opposite ends of. <laughs> you mentioned Stephen King. I love talking about him when we do this retrospective, as far as, you know, I'm going to do this every single podcast I can, what he thought of the movies. And when he got word that this was coming out, he deemed it unnecessary. He said that there was no reason to do it because Sissy Spacek did what she did with it. And they tried doing it in the early 2000s and listened to that fun podcast to hear exactly what we thought of how they pulled that off. But he got word of this and he said, yep, it's unnecessary. But then he gave, this is why Stephen King always cracks me up. He gave a suggestion as to who he thought should play Carrie. Do you guys have any guesses as to who this was? I know who it is, but I'm going to let Adam guess because this is one of my favorite tweets I've ever read from Stephen King. <laughs> I I got no, fr- I can't think of who would even be age appropriate back around that time. Yeah, no, in, I, I got nothing. Back in 2012, there was a woman, a girl, making headlines, not for the right reasons, oh, by the shit. name of Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> and Stephen King came out and said, in a tweet, I did research and I found it, that yes, Lindsay Lohan would make the perfect carry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, boy. This is a man who said Death Race was one of his favorite movies in 2007. <laughs> <laughs> we, there are so many things this man has said over the years that is, is fit for ridicule. And look, I have been one of Lindsay Lohan's biggest defenders over the years. I really have. It wasn't until she did the Canyons and I was like, you know what? This chick, there's no hope for this chick. So Lindsay Lohan was his suggestion. The movie comes out. He didn't really come out too much against it, which meant that, you know, I don't think he felt one way or the other about it, honestly. But I was sent by the Amigos to review this thing, and I came back and go back and read it. It is I do have it on my letterbox as we speak. I came back pretty positive on it. And I once again, I took a slew of shit for that. But at the time, I thought it was a pretty decently done remake. Now, I have not revisited this movie since. This was the first time I watched it. I watched it twice because it's been a couple weeks since the three of us have recorded for this podcast. I was curious to know exactly how I was going to feel coming out of it. Matt, did you come out of the theater? Yeah, you, you went into it kind of angry, but did you come out positive on it? Or how did you feel back in 2013? Well, I didn't go into the movie angry at the movie itself. I was angry I about what the chemical reaction it would cause. Yeah. My reaction to it was one of mild content. There were some things I liked. There were some updates I liked. And there were some less than stellar aspects that kind of swayed me more towards the negative. So for me, it was kind of like a, if I had to score it back then, it was probably like a six. Like if someone mm-hmm. asked me, did you like it? I'd be like, yeah, I guess. I just didn't think it was like strong enough to warrant an opinion one way or the other. All right, and Adam, I'm assuming this was your first time watching it for this oh, podcast. Oh, God, yeah. 
All right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's get into Adam's thoughts. Let's get into our thoughts. This has been the podcast I've been actually, you know, I've been really looking forward to this as part of this retrospective because I honestly, Adam watching this for the first time, I don't know where he's going to come from having seen this story for the first time. So we open up. We're seeing the birth of Carrie with some moans of desperation, a Bible amongst water that's been broken. And then we see Margaret White, played by Julianne Moore, in bed by herself, giving birth and then holding up a pair of scissors, which is a massive motif in this movie, up to the baby to cut her umbilical cord. This is what the 2002 version tries starting off with, but it's safe to assume I think Kimberly Pierce does a little bit better. What do you guys think of the opening of this thing? To me, this is the first one that starts out. I mean, it major difference. It feels like a horror movie right from the get-go here, and I thought that was a stark change that we haven't had before. It sort of took me off guard because I was expecting a borderline shot-for-shot remake just with contemporary aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So I liked how this house looked disheveled without coming across as them being, like, white trash. Obviously, you know, it's livable. The interpretation of the mom in this movie, it's an amalgam of the last two versions because she's got the abusive aspect down. Then she's got this kind of quaint mentality for parts of the movie. And they kind of take both of them steps further. So I feel like Margaret is different enough. But yeah, this opening, I couldn't believe she was about to stab a child with scissors. And this is the one moment where I felt the R rating. Outside of that, this is one of the most sanitized rated R movies I've ever seen in a very <laughs> long time. If you slapped on PG-13, outside of this opening, I probably would not be able to differentiate, especially nowadays. Agreed. Mm. There are some F-words moaned in this, aren't there? There's one, yeah. but that's the okay. PG-13 rule. You got one. Yeah. That's true. I don't know. I think there's some stuff at the end that warranted the rating. Pierce did say in interviews leading up to the release of this, it's going to be an R. I kind of wanted to make sure it was an R. I wanted enough violence to make it an R. I think there's enough here to make it R, but I could definitely see your guys' arguments with that. We then cut to a water polo match, different from a volleyball match, with Carrie, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, looking awkward before jumping in the water and playing some water polo. Okay, we've been circling this since the first Carrie podcast, guys, and I need to ask Adam first, how do you think Moretz does in the title role of this movie? Um, She's a very good actress. I'm going to have the same issue that I think we've had with every Carrie White that is not Sissy Spacek, and that is this person is not going to be an outcast enough to justify what goes on. They try to say so, but she's not awkward enough. She's not weird-looking enough. She's not heavy because God knows they're never going to actually make that accurate. So she still just does not depict someone that, to me, is going to be picked on. They go a different route. They make some other stuff a lot more obvious, but... As well as she's a good actress, how do you not fucking at least try to go, you know, a little more homely? I know that, you know, you want to do something different with this movie, but having a pretty 15-year-old girl, which, okay, this is probably the oldest-looking Carrie, and she's the fucking youngest one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I don't know how that works, but I don't know. she, She doesn't look simple enough for me. All right, a couple things on that before I go to Matt, because I have things I need to say. One... You started this podcast off by saying you loved Moretz as Hit Girl. Yep. I think that portrayal is really coloring your opinion on how Moretz does in this. Because in that movie, Moretz is so confident. She is such a huge stabilizing part of that movie. Carrie is not that in this movie. Mm -hmm. Carrie cannot be that. 
However, the way Pierce has written this character is different than what we've seen in the past because Carrie is not an outcast because of how she looks or no. what she what of her mannerisms. She's an outcast because of how she's been brought up and the way she's been taught over her years by her mother. And so they went a different route with that. And Pierce did send her to homeless shelters to kind of get her to feel a little homely because Pierce knew by casting her People are going to have this opinion of her, and he, she tried so hard to get her to come to set and not be the confident Chloe Grace Moretz that is going to premieres with Tim Burton. She worked with Scorsese. This girl had been around the block before she even was in this movie. She's, it could be arguable, next to Julianne Moore, she's the biggest star of this movie. I think that colors your opinion on this. I think she does okay. My problem is I think it's a bit of miscasting because of our prior interactions with her on screen. Matt, be the tiebreaker here, sir. What do you think? So... Adam, how does it feel to have someone tell you what your opinion is? <laughs> I was making a hypothetical. You know what? We're, we're, we're family. What can I say? <laughs> oh, God. So, let me say this. I am sort of with Adam in that it's difficult to distance myself from her prior roles. So, from an appearance perspective, throwing that out the window. My problem is that she hits all the right notes she's given. She can deliver her lines. She plays it pretty sheltered, and I feel for her when she's victimized. My problem is that throughout the whole movie, even in parts of the end, she comes across as way too docile. And what I mean by that is when she stands up to her mother and, like, starts to showcase her abilities, like holding her in place and all that shit, she uses the same cadence and the same speaking of, like, Mom, I'm going out. That's how she says all of her lines when she confronts her mother. I, I wish she... Anger might not be the right word, but I would have liked to have seen her be a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, dark phoenixy. There's no other way for me to say it. I read it based on the text. I read like her telekinesis as a representation of like her dark side because they talk about how it skips a generation. I don't know if that's true or not or if that's in the book or what the fuck, but I think she she's too... Yeah, docile would be my most accurate description. Yeah, I think overall this movie's cast pretty well. There are a lot of girls here I'd never seen before. And, of course, we have Julianne Moore, which we'll talk about here in a bit. But the one who distracts me in this is Judy Greer. Can this chick do a single push-up, number one? As much as Carrie is miscast, I think Greer is worse. I can't stand her as Miss DeJordan in this movie. That was the worst bit of casting in my eyes. I don't know how I know All right, Adam, defend it. Go. I, no, I know no, no, you're I, a Judy Greer mark. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know how I would have felt seeing it almost a decade ago, but now when I see it, it's just Judy fucking Greer. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what? It's the stepmom in fucking a dozen different movies playing it the exact same way. So, seeing it now, seeing her, so I'm she is such a distraction <laughs> because, yeah, I see Judy Greer. I don't see Miss Deschargent at all. I'm not going to be the tiebreaker. I'll be the dissenter because I, I didn't mind her. My problem is just her voice because all I hear is fucking Cheryl from Archer. <laughs> all I hear when she opens her mouth, yep. it's, it's, it's inescapable for me. But I think she holds herself pretty well. Part of that is I've seen her in enough movies, and she's sort of like one of those actresses. You've seen one performance of hers. You've seen them all because they tend to, to, to rinse and repeat. But I think there's someone in here. There's two people in here who are who are far worse. Like give performances that are so astonishingly bad that really? I have expected the golden raspberries instead of tampons to be thrown. <laughs> God. 
So Carrie jumps in the shower, and wouldn't you know it, the red flows, and the girls are none too sympathetic, though they probably wouldn't have noticed had she not run out of the shower and got it all over the other girls. No. This is when I thought some things were going to change. When this Because I wanted to read at least a little bit beforehand, before I watched this, going, why? Why, why, why would you do it? And seeing the notes of the director, just like, I wanted to do something different if I had something different to do with it. Absolutely agree. When this movie started off in a pool of water polo, I was convinced that's where it was going to happen because that would have been just such a bigger way to do the same type of thing. And it would have been inescapable for her at that point. So we get to the inevitable, but it's just how did you at least not change up that part a little bit? Though I don't know if anybody else noticed that when she's in there for a moment, it like, I don't know, maybe a second it, the, as it's panning, stops on a shower head and gives the fucking psycho cue. Mm. Just that sharp, you know, that violin scratch, like as it's picturing it, a shower head, which caught me off. You know, I was like, okay, I see at least where she's trying to go with this. You know, the tweak that she did that I actually adore. She actually does do it a little different. Sue is the first one to say, plug it up. But she's not saying it to chant at her. She's yeah. saying it like, got to uh, do something girl, about that. Plug it up. Yeah. Yeah, I did like but that the other girls get a hold of that, and like bullying, this is how bullying is. They just pile on, and so yeah. they turn it into something that wasn't originally intended. I thought that was a very, very well-thought-out way of taking this part. Matt, what about you, sir? I had never made that correlation to the pool. I think that, that that's interesting, because my question was, this school has to be pretty well-off to have that level of facility for gym class. Yeah, <laughs> good point. As far as the, the shower sequence, I noticed that violin scratch. I swear to God, Brian De Palma like haunted this movie in certain <laughs> aspects because there are parts where it is a slavish as being kind. I think the only reason they credit the original screenwriter is because they steal entire scenes of dialogue from the 76 movie. I well, did notice that, and yeah, well, they, I thought the same thing. They did credit him, but that's because he did come in and do rewrites. Because they had this guy who, I guess, had written on Glee, and he worked on, as Matt pointed out, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Um, <laughs> Talk about a he, uh, he, uh, he did this original script, and they ended up bringing Leonard Cohen back in to do touch-ups on this thing. So he is a credited screenwriter because he was brought in to do some rewrites. Look, did he rewrite it to go with what his original vision is? Hell, I don't know. It's tough to say. So Deidre Dan comes in to comfort her, only for the other girls to mock, and then Carrie ends up knocking out a light in response. We cut to the principal's office where Deidre Dan, she apologizes for slapping Carrie, and the principal himself looks and sounds so lost in this situation, which he is, so much so that he keeps calling her Casey, just like the original. Carrie objects to them bringing her mom into it, so much so that she takes out a glass water cooler before storming out of the office. This is almost shot for shot, except instead of an ashtray, we have a water cooler. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no ashtray. But also, I'm pretty sure that's a plastic water jug, not a glass one. Did it, but it made a glass sound when it broke. Yeah, it? well, that, that's the problem is that it's not consistent. In the first shot, it's clearly a plastic one. Oh. Cut back to it, it's a prop one that they must have shot with, like, <laughs> a shotgun or something to make it explode like that. Now, Matt, you said they must be well off. Here's my question. Do they ever specify in this movie where they are? Geographically? Yeah. I have no friggin' idea. I, I don't think there's a there's a title card or, or anything. I just looked it up. So it's you in high school and where else? Fucking Maine. Maine. Of course. There it is. God, has there ever been somebody who put Maine on the map as much as Stephen King has? <laughs> <laughs> so Carrie is picked up by her mom and continually mocked by her classmates. They recreate the kid on a bike scene. 
again. You though this time it's kind of different, as he's just walking up to the window calling her crazy Carrie before she knocks him on his ass. I see Pierce, what she's doing here, and I know that she's trying to do something different. But when you do scenes like this, you're already calling attention to yourself. Don't you agree? Yeah, all these, the, the very minuscule scenes that they borrow, like principal's office or this kid on the bike, they feel shoehorned as being kind. It almost feels obligatory, where there are moments where I do think this is sort of setting its own path. But the scenes, the transitions, like the these, and they even kept the scene with the pigs, which I thought for sure that would be a change. Mm-hmm. It feels like they couldn't escape the Brian De Palma one, and unfortunately that's to the movie's detriment. Because I, I think the more they draw attention to it, the more inferior this overall product looks. And I'm not going to damn this movie completely for that, because Lord knows the 76 movie is immensely popular, but... You're not doing yourself any favors by putting in these these tiny nuggets that can be removed, and the rest of the movie still functions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's I appreciate the changes that she is putting in there. If you wanted to get in that creepy carry because it meant something to you, you could have had it done a different way. I liked the change, but it you know it hemmed a little too close. Seeing mom pick her up at the school and just seeing that kind of uncomfortableness, though, I really like the way that was done. Julian Moore wears she she wears the character on her face so goddamn well that you start to know that she's just, she's not right. She's also not wearing any makeup, if you notice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Chloe Grace Moretz is either, and unfortunately, they just did to her what they did to Michelle Pfeiffer before she gets pushed out a window with Batman Returns, where they just not her hair, and she's kind of hunched over. She does everything but wear glasses. I thought of that stupid movie that she did, I think it was with Al Pacino, called Frankie and Johnny, where they tried so hard to make her like this dowdy waitress. But, dude, Michelle Pfeiffer is fucking Michelle Pfeiffer, especially back in the late 80s. You cannot fucking ugly that girl up. Yep. Yeah, go, you know, waking up with bedhead and putting on glasses and hunching over. You're, you know, Clark, Clark Kent, you're not. <laughs> so Adam mentioned Julianne Moore. Let's get to that. Here's where you get a long look at the relationship between Carrie and Margaret, with Margaret saying it is a sin for Carrie to become a woman. So we already talked about Moretz. Adam, you already touched on it, but go ahead and expand on it. How do you feel about Julianne Moore as Margaret White in this thing? I think every time that she's on, she steals the show in a, in a different way than we got back in the original Carrie. Clearly, she's trying to go a different way. She's not hamming it up to the histrionics, the hysterical nature, but she feels fucking scary. Like, this is a devout, religious, just creepy fuck. You know what? It's, you know, is my door shut? Yeah. This is my dearly departed mother-in-law. <laughs> Love her to death, but just that kind of fanatical type not quite all there in certain things. So this was fucking a little real for me. <laughs> you know? Kind of hit close to home, huh? She delivers it in a way that's believable. Laura's not from Maine, is she? All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> think, things that you ask. God damn it. <laughs> Matt, how do you feel about Julia Moore in this, sir? I think she's... Better is not the right word because there are different performances. Mm-hmm. But... The theatrical component is still here. Their scenes feel like they're ripped from the stage because a lot of steady shots. It's one setting, pretty much. But they make the character different. Clearly, she's borderline schizophrenic in this movie. and She's like a, she's a self-mutilator, which was not in either of the yeah. versions. So it adds to the uneasiness and sort of the, the victimhood that Carrie carries throughout this movie. Yeah, I agree with that. I look at Julianne Moore, and and reading more interviews with Pierce, she said that Julianne Moore would come with her own ideas and say, you know, why would I want to say this when I can say this? And this character wouldn't say this. She feels like the type of person who would read that book 
three to four times cover to cover and then make her own biography of Margaret White and bring that to the set. She seems like that kind of actress. And I was saying even way back then that like Piper Laurie, I thought she deserved an Oscar nomination for this. I thought she was tremendous in this. I love Love, love the self-mutilating aspect of this character that she brings to it. I thought that was a really nice touch. I think the scenes that she has with Carrie are very strong. I believe them as mother-daughter. And, and I like the fact, Adam, as you touched on it, I like that she doesn't go big on this. She does what Clarkson tried doing in that 2002 movie and just wasn't too successful. No offense against Clarkson, but Julia Moore is just so tremendous in this role. I have nothing but praise for her in this. I literally, when this was announced... I looked at this as pretty much Julianne Moore trying to take a money-grabbing role. I thought this was something to get her in the limelight because it is a popular horror film. It's a remake of a popular horror film. And this is her trying to get herself back out there. I look at this and I think she took it as a challenge. And she rises up to it. I was surprised when I didn't see too many more things out there about her performance because I think she is tremendous in this movie. So Margaret sends Carrie to her closet to pray as Carrie objects and yells, God, you suck, before causing a rip in the door. Anyone else expect stones to fall at this point? <laughs> I kind of was. <laughs> right back in the closet. But it starts off right here. <laughs> You're a wizard, Carrie. <laughs> no. Puts her in the, in the closet under the stairs, and bam, we kind of start right away. Well, it's funny you say that, because when the original Carrie came out in 76, we didn't have superheroes on screen, really, at that point. So the fact that this is kind of looked at, and Matt, you pointed to Dark Phoenix, this is almost a superhero story, is it not? Yeah, yeah. this is basically what, if Stephen King, not only, if he wrote comics, he would love to do X-Men. And I always look at this and Chronicle as sort of oh. what one and the same, which I think came out probably a year before this. Yeah, that came out in 12. We get some religious imagery from inside the closet before cutting to Sue and Tommy fucking, which, okay. Or at least Tommy fucking, as Sue is distracted by what happened at school earlier today. Tommy asks if she apologized, and I like this dynamic. We, we are going to see this build up as the film goes on. But is it damning to say that I like these two and how they're woven into the story even more than the Palmas version? Because I think what Pierce does in this that is different is she makes it more from the points of view of the people around Carrie and not Carrie herself. Yes, we went home with her. Yes, we saw the dynamic between her and her mom. But this movie is told more from Sue and Chris's point of view. And I think that helps this narrative a lot. As far as Sue goes, she doesn't leave an impression for me. From a structure standpoint, I get the guilt that's conveyed in her character. And I also like when the Nancy Allen character, Chris, calls her out on it, saying, like, you're just doing this to save your ass because you're trying to apply to college and all this other stuff. So maybe she's not as pure as 76 one. But this actress leaves no impression on me. Anybody could have played this role. And speaking of actors, I would not like to see. Every time I see Ansel Elgort, I just want to punch him in the face. He, 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 he looks like the guy that's going to try to sell you a gram outside your local TV. <laughs> and, and he's got he's got the acting range of a potato chip. Baby Driver works because he is literally the vehicle for everyone else to react to and steal the movie. Vehicle, uh, huh? Yep. That was wow. Here. He is rampant with the puns tonight. Couple things. One, I, I like Ansel Elgort in Baby Driver. Hugh, I I fucking adore that movie. But I agree with Matt. He's a you know he he plays his part well. I don't think he's a great actor in this at all, but I think he does a good enough job. You know, it's his first role, and I'm glad he got it because he's, shit, this kid was a hair's breadth from being Han Solo. Then he was a hair's breadth from being Peter Parker for, 
slight multiverse, and he's got a completely different career after this anyway. The relationship with Sue and Chris, I agree. I kind of like playing that in a little more because that is as important as anything else. You know, if you're going to go into bullying and the updated way they do bullying in this, I think it's important that those side stories don't get short shrifted and aren't unimportant because their relationship makes sense in this one more than the other ones. They give a little more to it and their scenes together work, you know, with Chris and Sue. You actually feel some tension between them for the first time. Like we always said, hey, they're speaking it, they're saying this, but we don't feel it. I think this is the first time we at least feel that a friend feels betrayed here. It's funny. You mentioned Ansel Elgort was almost Han Solo. William Cat was almost Luke Skywalker. So it's funny how <laughs> everything kind of comes around here. There's another thing I like what Pierce is doing with this casting. I thought this was actually a kind of a brilliant touch. The blonde, who is usually the bitch in these types of movies, is actually the sympathetic one, while the brunette Chris is the quote-unquote bitch of this movie. Pierce knows what she's doing when it comes to casting this thing. I thought this was a brilliant inverse, honestly. Especially since the one that plays Chris normally is a blonde anyway, so she looks good as mm-hmm. a brunette. Look, look natural. Absolutely. So we cut to Chris, Tina, and Billy as they post the video of Carrie from earlier in the day. Anyone else chuckle at them making her favorite movie, Bloodsport? <laughs> Who the hell thought of that movie in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, wait, way to date yourself. Like, <laughs> I doubt this guy even knows who Jean-Claude Van Damme is. <laughs> what high school kid that is not Matthew Goudreau or Jack Falvey <laughs> is looking up Bloodsport to put on a fucking page like this? <laughs> and what, got you what 35-year-old looking guy? Is going to high schools and hit. This guy looks like I, I have to expect Chris Hansen to come out of nowhere throughout every time <laughs> this movie. He looks so much older than everyone else. This is the nine hundred two one zero ism of this one here. Is this yeah, absolutely? I think for the most part, Pierce does a good job with casting people that look the right age. But I think you're right. Although I do, I will say he's a better Billy than two thousand two. And this guy, ironically, was also in Chronicle. Oh, was he really? (laughs) Yeah, he was the one that was not Dane DeHaan or Michael B. Jordan. He's what we call the third wheel. (laughs) (laughs) We go back to Margaret, who is singing along with her religious songs in the background, and then she goes in the closet to ask Carrie if she has finished her prayers. I'm getting a very loving relationship between these two that I didn't feel before, and I think a lot of that has to do with who these two characters are played by. I feel this relationship more than I did. I love that 76 movie, but I didn't feel the love between Carrie and her mom like I do between Carrie's mom and her in this. Look, I wouldn't want to be raised by this woman, but I see that she loves her, and she just has a different way of showing that love. Yeah, she's affectionate in the way that like classic abusers are. Where yeah. she'll yep. beat you up and then she she's all loving and maternal. So I think that the balancing act and the going back and forth, I think it's it's pretty effective. We cut back to a gym class with De Jardin mocking the girls for what's coming up in prom, pretty much provoking them for what they did yesterday, including posting the video and makes them do suicides when Chris is piping up. <laughs> Chris tells A. Jordan, fuck you, and no one is joining her in her rebellion. Again, I think Pierce is doing a nice job of setting all this up as if, you know, everything's coming organically to them. We're not just getting from A to B in the story. We're seeing them take this journey, and I like what she's doing here. Yeah, I agree. They're the beats that we've gone through before, but she's doing a really good job playing the beats. Mm -hmm. We cut to Carrie breaking a mirror, much to her own delight. 
She's also doing research of telekinesis that doesn't involve a library card catalog system like we saw before. Uh, she's actually doing the search on the internet, as they mentioned in 2002. Carrie reads a passage in front of the class that causes mockery from students, as well as her teacher who says she's scaring the class and that this is the most she's spoken all year. But it's Tommy, of all people, who comes to Carrie's defense, calling what she read awesome. So you guys don't like Ansel Ergert, huh? No, well, mean, he, he's fine. He read, he read his personal life. I think he took this literally based on some of the accusations made towards him. Yeah, he's definitely not a not a very good person. But I think in this movie, I think he's fine. You guys mock the girls. I think the girls are very well cast. I, I like the fact that we don't have another huge name in the teenage department here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I just think everything just works. She's taking this damn story and she's doing something that I actually respect. And she's making it her own. I don't know. I just kind of dig that. And Matt, you can mock the performances of the other girls all you want. I, I'm just kind of going with this. Well, I, I, if there's one I'm going to mock and think is is an update for the worst or a translation for the worst, it's Chris, the main bully girl. Her and Billy are borderline sociopaths in this movie. They upped it, but not in a in a way that's contemporary. These feel like holdover villains from like the It era of Stephen King. People that actively try to murder you. And that's kind of antithetical to the anti-bullying message because they're so exaggerated that you want to see Carrie kill them. I think that's a major detriment for the movie is, is their portrayals. I don't know if it's in the writing or uh, the large part of the performances, but I think their, their direction is to be just as evil and cruel as possible. We see that they gave Margaret a job in this one. She's a seamstress. And this is when Sue's mom apologizes for what Sue did. And again, here's when we see the added element of anxiety that Margaret has as she's pushing a blade against her thigh out of frustration. And this I like. I was trying to think of, you know, is she is she just a cutter? Or is it such a deep religious affiliation that you have something like we saw in the debate you where you have self-flagellation and things like that? from a religious standpoint. I went with it either way, whether it was her punishing herself or just her way of dealing with the stresses when she was trying to normalize herself around people. This was another thing, though, seeing the two mothers, you know, actually meet, but changing it up just a little bit. And the scene works really well. I'm glad Julianne Moore, even just getting another scene, while it's not massive, it's a good fucking scene that fleshes out that character just that little bit more. And I like seeing these two parents actually have to come face to face. Yeah, I like that the mother's not a complete shut-in. Like, she obviously works a job. Uh-huh. She does have a job in the book as well. But, yeah, this is the first time we've seen it portrayed on screen. Chris's dad shows up to the principal's office, and when Chris refuses to give them her phone as proof that she didn't take the video, she storms out, causing her dad to sue them. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing the element of technology to this, we haven't really touched on that yet. <laughs> did you think that Pierce did enough with this? added aspect because yeah this would happen because as we mentioned last podcast that would be a thing because back when me and adam went to school we would do it and then it would just be spread around school now you do something like this freak out over your period and it's going to be broadcast on a fucking youtube channel did you guys think she did enough with this i think she did for it being 2013 i think it'd be different now seven eight nine years later back then i think that's what would have been there so Chris and Sue, they have a massive fallout with Chris calling Sue out for also throwing stuff at Carrie in the shower. This conversation right here is what drives Chris to do what she does for Carrie. And again, it just feels organic. Before, it just kind of happened. Sue was just like, oh, I feel bad for what happened, so I'm just going to get my boyfriend to take him to the prom. Now we have a reason why she does it. Again, I think that's really good. It works for me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not overly critical of that. 
And Adam's right that I'm glad that they don't go overboard with the technological aspect. Carrie doesn't have a Facebook page or, or any of this other crap. They're not live tweeting the prom. Nobody's taking selfies. I'm glad it's not so far removed that it dates horribly. We cut to Carrie's room as she's still learning how to do her powers by moving books around her room. And I like the progression of the powers. At this point, again, superhero movies, they were running like crazy in theaters. And I think Pierce is doing a nice job of incorporating those elements here while, again, making it feel organic to the story. This was different than her going and reading books. She's actually learning how to do this in her room. And this is, again, this is straight from the book. So I like because, unlike the original, they do a good job of foreshadowing and teasing just how powerful she actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Chris meets up with Tommy and tells him that she wants him to take Carrie to the prom. He mocks her at first, but she talks him into it by giving him the whole one magic night speech. Tommy's walking around the halls, high-fiving students as he goes, and finds Carrie in the cafeteria saying that he once hypnotized his friend's dog and then asked her to the prom. This was a very awkward conversation. And this is the one scene until the finale where I really like Moretz. She just says, what? And cannot figure out why he would ask her. This shows her awkwardness. And this finally displays to me why she was cast in this role. Besides her star power, besides what she could bring to the theater, I do like what she does here. This is a scene I really do like her in. It works. I don't love it. I'm not against it at all. For this carry, it's exactly what it needs. Carrie is stopped by Day Jordan, who seems happy for her, until she says that Tommy Ross was the one who asked her. So now Day Jordan is, she's feeling a little skeptical about what the whole situation is going to bring. Day Jordan, Tommy, and Sue have a conversation, and here's when she, he says that famous athletes like Tim Tebow do stuff like this all the time. <laughs> Let's instantly date this fucking movie. I hate when movies do this. I fucking hate it. Well, that's, that's why I'm glad they didn't go further with the technology, because it, it would yeah, have been, you know... good point. The, it would have been the risk of the movies that have MySpace, you know? And, and Blackberries. Good point. Yeah. There's no sidekicks in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tommy comes to Carrie's house to hound her until she says yes. He uses the line that he liked what she said in class, and then she finally succumbs to his wishes as her mom approaches... Carrie then goes dress shopping, and Pierce really plays up how in the moment she is, even showing her give a genuine smile as she's amongst all these dresses. We're getting different things here. We're getting different approaches to the material. We're seeing Carrie be happy. So Carrie comes home and says much to her mom's horror that she's been asked to the prom. She responds that Tommy will hurt her like all the boys. And again, Carrie is using her powers, and this frightens Margaret, especially when she uses Darth Vader powers to elevate her and make her stand up. Matt, this is what you're talking about here? Yeah, I like how they, they reinforce that she's got very adept telekinetic powers, although I will say, I, I wish she stood up to her mother more, like, shouted instead of just trying to be so just, no, I'm going. I, I, I can't get over how just ineffectual I find her performance to be in these moments. Have you ever seen Moretz actually do that, though? I don't think I've ever seen her get emotional in her films. Um, Kick-ass. Is she emotional in that? When, spoiler when Nick Cage dies. Well, okay. That's a point. <laughs> and I um, she also gets bullied like this in Kick-Ass, too. That's true. I, I was expecting that fucking vomit stick to show up in this, too, by the way. Or that diarrhea stick, I should say. Whatever that fucking thing was. I only saw that movie once. You know, I, I like this elevation of powers, though. And she's doing different things with this. Like, she's, she's moving her hands in a different way. Like I said, almost Sith-like. And we'll see this at the end. She's learning this, and it actually frightens her mom. Her mom, again, this is different. Her mom's not the real villain of the story. Carrie is not 
being looked down upon because of what she looks like. She's being looked down upon because of her morals and the way, the way she's been brought up and the way her mom has brought her up. This is that anger coming out. And I, I like this. I like this escalation. So Margaret responds by going for the heart, saying that she thought she was cancer. Man alive. And these are the times when I just, you know, there are times when I'm like, okay, I feel bad for Margaret, right? She's, she's stuck in this situation. But then she says shit like this. It's like, okay, you're a heartless bitch. Chris and Billy, they go to the pig farm, and stop me if you've heard this before, they kill a pig, but this time they turn it into something almost erotic. I'll give Pierce this. She succeeded in making this seem different. Um, sure I was not did. expecting them to make out in blood in this, but it was actually kind of hot. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes to what you were saying earlier. It shows that these two, I mean, they're so far fucking over the line. Carrie or not, these two are serial killers fucking just waiting to happen, it seems. Pierce then gives us a montage contrasting Carrie preparing for prom with Chris and Billy preparing the bucket of blood, as well as some pedicures and tuxedo buying. I was not expecting a montage in the 2013 version. I completely forgotten about this. Maybe it's because we focused so much on the montage in the 76 version, but I'm like, wow, she actually included a montage in this as well. That's just that the montage is entirely pointless, because if you notice, the last shot is all the guys modeling off their seemingly final tuxes. Only for Tommy to show up to her house in the opposite color. goes <laughs> <laughs> from a black jacket to a white jacket without an explanation. All right, guys, we're about an hour in. How are we feeling at this point? Adam, I'll go to you first. You know, how are you feeling in contrast to 76? I'm not even going to count 2002. Are you liking what you're getting? Is this different than what you were expecting? What are you feeling at this point? It's a little different than what I was expecting. Not in a bad way, just a little different. I mentioned in that first one that it I wasn't engaged right off the bat. This one... I mean, this one hooks you from the beginning. Carrie White is played a little bit different. I don't know as I'm going through how I feel about her being comfortable with these powers and kind of exploring to learn. And get, you know, when she, which is funny, I have it in my notes, when she goes Vader on her mother, I don't know how I like that because I'm like, okay, if you could do this now, where's the gut punch of, oh my God, she's, what well, in 76 feels like she's possessed at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a different different route. But I'm, I'm engaged with it. I'm not having a bad time. If anything, I appreciate seeing how how they're going to tell the story a little bit differently. Matt, how about you, sir? You came out kind of iffy in 2013. I'm guessing this is your first time watching this since then. How are you feeling about an hour in? Is it about, is it about identical? I was a little bit more positive for the first hour because I did see some diversions and some changes for the better. But at the same time, I don't still think it's different enough to justify its own existence. So that's my big measuring stick question with all remakes is, are you justifying your existence? And I still think it, I still think it's no. And part of that's just because this story is so universal, not just because it's been told three other fucking times, but just the underlying message of, this has been represented in a variety of movies, like everything from Chronicle to countless other ones. So I think that that familiarity is also kind of a burden. But I will say, I'm glad this is not two hours long. It's a crisp 90 minutes. Yep. Doesn't overstay its welcome. And it gets you to the prom at much like a good prom date. It gets you there at the right time. And it leaves before your parents give you shit. And for the record, uh, yes, my son will add this to the queue right behind Dream Warriors and uh, <laughs> some, some other nighttime viewings. So I'll add this to the docket. I got to agree with you there, Matt. The pacing and editing to keep it going, the pace is done pretty dang smartly. We then get the dirty pillows scene. 
as Margaret begs her to take off the dress so they can beg for forgiveness together before she throws her mom in a closet with her powers. But this isn't out of spite from Carrie because she still says she is sorry and that she loves her as she leaves. This is why I say this dynamic is different than what we've seen in the past. And there's actually love between these two. Not healthy love, but it's there. Tommy shows up in a limo, and Pierce is playing these moments up, even going so far as show Carrie's face as she enters the limo and the sun hits her. Of course, we know where this goes, but what a dream scenario for a character like Carrie to have. I just wish that Moretz was playing these moments better. I don't find her in these prom moments, in these moments of bliss, to be good. And I hate saying that, but I just think she's miscast as this character. I don't see her not having these moments. For me, it's because there's a huge difference from, if we're talking about the original, huge, huge difference. And when Sissy Spacek Carrie gets her prom moment, it feels just more dramatic for that character, for that Carrie, than it is for this Carrie. These are the moments where I feel she's miscast because I don't feel like she's enough of an outsider Mm-hmm. to be swept up in all the glitz and glamour of a prom, which, here we go. Proms don't look like this anymore. For, for God's <laughs> sake. I went to prom in fucking 2011. That was my senior prom. And it did not look like a holdover from Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the one thing they did not update whatsoever. It didn't look like the enchantment under the sea dance? Really? Tommy puts her corsage on her wrist, and we are often racing to the prom. Carrie meets George and Erica. We see Dave Jordan just getting into the dance, and she comes to ask Carrie how she's doing. And if there's one thing I like about this version of Dave Jordan as opposed to the others, is that I believe she actually cares for Carrie here. There's my one compliment for Greer, is I think I, I think she shows genuine care. I think the other Dave Jordans, there's always something going on between them. I don't know. It was almost like she was getting off on making these girls uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Like, she, she liked the power that she had. Here, I feel empathetic, and that's a good thing to feel. I'm also kind of shocked that a teacher, you know, some of these teachers would dress this way to prom. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> I also like how when Tommy is trying to give Carrie the time of her life, he's also texting Sue that he misses her. Everything here feels genuine. I did like that, that he's not completely ignoring the fact that Sue's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that there's still a tie of that part going on. As you said, you know, it felt it felt real. My problem is just this is the pitch-perfect example of why a director's vision is so important. In the De Palma version, there's that long tracking shot of following them through the prom, then you cut like a crane shot almost where it's like the you see the top falls up to the pig's blood here it, it just i don't get swept up in the euphoria and the 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 layout of this spot which is very imperative to set up considering you're about to lock everyone into this place it doesn't do a good job of establishing just where everyone is and sort of the geography if that makes any sense They go out for a slow dance, and I like the scene between the two. He likes doing what he's doing, and I think him and Moretz have a pretty decent chemistry between them. Chris and Billy, they take their positions as Tommy and Carrie vote for themselves. Of course, this means they win by one vote. Chris, of course, is pushing the issue by texting Sue with, Your girl looks good, but not for long. (laughs) This chick is such a fucking bitch. And I like how, again, Pierce is giving reasons. This is what drives Sue to be there. Before, she just kind of showed up. She was just like, hmm, I wonder how Tommy and Carrie are doing. She, just, she was just kind of there. Here, she's given a reason. And I just love how Pierce is asking questions. Why? It's a big thing with me. In movies, things just kind of happen. And I don't like randomness. 
here things are happening for a reason, and I dig that approach to this material. Does Sue need to be there? Well, she does because she knows something bad's going to happen because of this text. I'm just thinking, you know, in the te- if, if we're changing something, and then I'm, I'm rewriting a movie that was done a long time ago, but I'm thinking, could it be impactful for her to be sitting at home and maybe seeing a news story as this is developing? If you're going to change something up, just because Sue, Sue finds her way there, Sue finds her way there. And I don't mind it. I'm just like, man, it could have been just imagine sitting at home watching it and knowing that you sent your boyfriend there and you're at home. I would say yes, because you have the sympathetic person there with Desjardins, who is basically in the same spot as Carrie is, or, or Sue is, excuse me. So I think she kind of serves her role. Given that predicament, I think Adam's scenario he just pitched would have actually been a smart change. Carrie and Tommy win the vote, and here is when they make the slow walk up to the stage. Desjardins notices Sue and tries getting her out as the blood comes down and lands right on Carrie. At this point, they also turn on the video of her getting mocked in gym class, but the bucket comes down, and much like King's book, it kills Tommy. I I don't think uh, any of the other iterations did a good job of illustrating the fact that Tommy dies with this hit. The other two just kind of fell. This, you look at it, yeah, he dead. Yeah, I Um, think it's the first time they make it clear. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to touch upon as I was reading an interview with Pierce about this scene and about the fact that she knew that she was going to take shit for making a lot of this CGI. Yeah, uh, they did do a couple of the takes using the real blood, but she did a lot of this in CGI, and her reasoning for doing it made a lot of sense to me. Yes, making the blood practically might have made for some great shots and moments, but as the cleanup is done, as the reset is up and the shot is redone, you are not only spending gobs of time redoing it, you're also having to cut at least five shots you had planned for the film. Five rather important shots. So rather than lose those components, Pierce made a decision to do mostly CGI. And for the most part, I think this looks pretty good. And it's very red, by the way. Um, it's very what, red. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys think about the blood coming down scene? I was expecting it, to be honest. I, it, it looks like it's designed for a poster. Mm-hmm. I understand you're also, I mean, Chloe Grace Moretz is, what, 15 while this is filming? 14 while this is filming? So you can't... 16. You can't treat a child on set like you did Sissy Spacek. Like, you just can't. So I'm sure that also had to be a part of it. I understand the reasoning for it. It looks like it's Chloe Grace Moretz painted red as opposed to Sissy Spacek being drenched in blood, though. It looks like it's done by an art studio, by an art house, instead of being dumped in blood. It reminded me a lot of the the blood that they used in Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd movie where it's designed to pop off the screen. It's not meant to look realistic. In that way, I appreciate it because, to be honest, a lot of the color grading in this movie, I don't think it's very good. There's a lot of gray. There's almost a washed-out quality to a lot of the scenes, like especially in the house. That stuff's kind of grainy, too, so I like the pop of color that you get with the red. Yeah, it's not realistic, but it's a movie about a girl who can move shit with her mind. I mean, I'm not looking for scientific accuracy. I am looking for actual architecture, though, based on my complaints about the building and the the finances of the school. So I I have a very specific set of needs and standards that I'm looking for. (laughs) It's a sign I'm getting old. I don't fucking know. One thing we glanced over real quick is we failed to see Margaret breaking out of that closet. Am I the only one that thought she fucking pulled the here's Johnny fucking right through the door? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, you know, hopefully it was just a cute little nod, and she holds it for, God, not even a second, but I'm like, she fucking pulled the Shining here by letting Margaret White loose. Oh, there are a lot of things to pull with that Shining, but we'll get to it. Another thing to keep in mind, 
in this scene is the thing that makes Carrie go off isn't really the video or the crowd mocking her. I mean, I'm sure those things didn't help, but it was seeing Tommy, Tommy. the one person who treated her as a real person, get killed. That set the stage for what she was about to do next. Again, Pierce is illustrating this perfectly. She looks down, she sees him, boom, here we go. I I I appreciated that. I read it as something different. I read it as the fact people were laughing at her. I don't think it was the video itself. I think it was the, oh, my mother reaffirmed everything I believe that everyone's out to get you. My mother was right. Ooh. Oh, well, that's the thing you got to realize about this, too. And Pierce did say that in interviews. Everything people are saying about Carrie is right. Chris saying that Carrie ruined her life is correct. Carrie's mom saying that she changed her life for the worse is correct. Everything people are saying is right. Her mom saying that everybody's going to laugh at you like she did in the first one. Or in this one, you know, the boys are going to mock you. Boom. It's happening right here. And I do like the synergy that is played with in this movie. The carnage. I love the carnage in this movie. I like how her face is half red, half white. I like the guy getting crunched in the bleachers. I like how Carrie is almost getting pure joy in her face as she's up on stage, moving her hands, causing people to get caught on fire. She takes out a guy with a camera. Even as she is making a point of lifting up Desjardins, she holds her there to keep her from getting electrocuted. Like, look, I'm saving you, but stay out of my fucking way. It's sanitized. I'm not saying I want mass destruction, but I've seen all the Final Destination movies. I kind of want to that effect, like with the bleachers. I'm like, oh, that reminded me of the scene in the fourth one with the escalator. The woman falls into the, the friggin' escalator. God. Uh, but also, the, the, I like the more the, the practical stuff, like the girls getting trampled to death. I think that stuff's way more effective because it's plausible. I thought the electrocution was going to actually, more people were going to get electrocuted. Although, I was talking about scenes that are unintentionally funny. When the full screen kid gets killed by a flying table, I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I, I don't care for this entire carnage scene, which kind of sucks. I, I don't want really? to I, I say the whole thing. Her lifting up Desjardins that way, I did fucking love that. Because the water's there, you're like, oh shit, she picks her up. Well, you actually see her spread some of the water around for herself. That bleacher scene cracked me up because fucking everybody gets told you're going to get crushed in those bleachers when you're in school, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the rest of it, though, it didn't capture me. I mean, this is what you go to carry for is this scene, and I don't think it did it even better than the rage. Oh, wow. Um, not to mention I saw the fucking fire tubes behind her, which pissed me off. <laughs> I could see the, where the fucking gas flames were coming from. And her doing the – you know what? I liked the end of Rogue One when I saw it the first time. <laughs> seeming in full control of what she's doing doesn't jive for me i liked in that original carry that i felt that she was out of control and here she feels very much in control of all of this and it's a choice it's just not a choice that i necessarily like and she's vadering her way through the whole thing and then when she decides to fucking fly i lost it i could have done without the jazz hands Really? This scene comes off as more unintentionally hilarious than actually foreboding and scary. And yeah, I like the Rage Carry 2 big murder sequence at the mansion considerably more than I like this. Wow. See, I did not find it to be unintentionally hilarious. I liked her raising her hands and doing that. I'm liking her getting the joy of making these people pay. I liked her saving Desjardins. All of this stuff is working for me because I have been with this character the entire time. Not with the performance, but with this character and the way she's been written. 
I think there are a lot of things about this that work. I cannot believe you guys are saying that the Rage is better than this. That, <laughs> like the, that, that blows my mind. Uh, Adam, since Adam mentioned Rogue One, I'll also say I liked it better when Magneto did it in first place. <laughs> <laughs> so she exits the school and is leaving just a ton of carnage behind her as Chris and Billy they head to Carrie and she okay alright this is the one point where I'm going to agree with you guys when she does the Hulk stomp <laughs> yes you heard that right the Hulk stomp to take out this car this was the one time this movie just came off to use Mike Venary's term very silly I fucking hated that. So Carry smash. Oh, God. And it looked bad, too. But I did like when they try ramming her and Billy jams his face into the steering wheel and Chris is Oof. going through the glass. I thought that was an awesome shot. Uh, you know, Oh, it's Absolutely so vicious. vicious. Yeah. And, you know, Pierce wasn't known for horror. She's not known for horror. She does all character work. So the fact that she's pulling this stuff off. Really, like this is stuff I've never seen before. You know, I've never seen someone go through head first through a glass pane like this in slow motion. Matt, you and I have seen a lot of people go through glass in these horror films, but not like this. And I thought that was pretty glorious. It, it was overkill when she blew up the car with with the fucking pole. I thought that was <laughs> way too overwrought. I saw it coming, but it made me laugh because you keep seeing the how many fucking superheroes walk away from an explosion while they're being badass. <laughs> this was Carrie White just doing exactly that. She finishes the job by blowing up the gas station. She then rushes home, and then she sinks in the bath. She tells her mom that she was right. They ended up laughing at her. Margaret gives her a speech and tells them to pray before taking out a knife and stabbing her back. Not as brutal as the first one. I gotta say, I was watching this and I was like, okay... Are they going to modernize this? But they don't. They actually make it kind of PG-13-ish, I guess I could say. Amazingly uh, enough, by not changing it, they fucking got me. Because really? I'm going, there's no way they're actually going to do exactly what they did, and they fucking did exactly that. And then they end up having their cake and eating it, too, by the end of it. It actually shocked me, because I didn't think they were gonna, she was going to go that route. She comes after Carrie, saying it's not her fault. A fight breaks out before Carrie lifts her up and stabs her with every starved object in the house, including a ruler, and you got it, scissors. So we got that synergy going. And they brought back the Jesus imagery. So even though we don't have, you know, even though it wasn't a Jesus, but, you know, we didn't have the religious poster in the closet, but it's just a perfect crucifix. And it even starts out with stigmata, like through the hands, Mm -hmm. when she starts in on her mother. So, but it's it's just a perfect crusade. Even the head tilting to the side, like it's the classic white ripped Jesus abs, you know, up on a cross that they leave her with. I thought this would be a definitive change, and was startled that it was borderline identical, except for the fact that the mother admits that the night of consent was mutual, um, yeah. and she kind of has repented for that. So that that was a nice change. But the um, I wasn't crazy, but the. You know, I'm not one to rag on effects, but the actual house falling down mm. could have used another polish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they bring back the stones, too, which was weird. Yeah. Sue walks in. What are you doing here, honey? <laughs> <laughs> and Carrie tells her that she killed her mom. Anyone else think at this point that they're going to run off together like they did at the, at the end of 2002? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was setting it up for a sequel. <laughs> She says that she's scared before the house comes falling down, and Carrie, seeing that Sue is pregnant with Tommy's daughter, saves her before the entire house comes down. What saves Sue isn't the fact that she was there for Carrie. What saves Sue is the fact that she has the last remains of Tommy in her. 
and the last memory of Tommy. And that is why she saved this girl. Mm, yeah, that didn't even hit me. We cut to Sue on the stand, stating that Carrie had power, but she also had hopes and fears, and you can only push them so far until they break. We then see the gravestone of Carrie, which is covered in graffiti, wishing her to burn in hell. The gravestone starts breaking, and credits roll on Carrie 2013, boys. Interesting change here. I'm glad they didn't do the whole Carrie reaches out her hand and pulls Sue in like we did in the original. What do you guys think of the way they ended this thing? Did I see a different ending? Uh, What ending did you see? I got Sue in a hospital. Oh, you saw the alternate ending. Oh, wow, you did. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, you did. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Expand, though. What, What did you see? Okay, so it ends up, as you said, we got the grave, We got, which I actually appreciated that there was graffiti on it because that feels accurate. But then we see Sue in a hospital about ready to give birth, or, or in labor, giving birth. Um, and a pretty dramatic and intense scene where she starts almost hemorrhaging blood, and then suddenly a from her crotch area, a hand reaches out like we got in that original carry from the grave, but this time it's literally from between her legs reaches out and grabs her as she wakes up at her mom's screaming. Wow, where'd you see that at? It was on the cut I saw. I know, but what, what, where'd you see the cut? I swear it was just on, I thought it was on Tubi. I thought that was it because it felt like, yeah, it, I didn't see anything that said extended cut or special cut. Yeah. Interesting. Matt, did you see the version I saw or the one that Adam saw? I've seen both. The one thing that I do like about the ending that Adam saw is that there's no courtroom scene. That speech that she gives is so on the nose. It might as well take place in a church. It's so preachy. Did you like the way they ended it with the gravestone, though? I did. I don't like that the fucking grave, though, like, rips open and she yells. I thought that was that, that was a bit excessive. It's like, we got to come up with one last scare but we can't do the literal hand raising out, so we got to find a way to get the audience and tease that she might still be alive. All right. So that does it for Carrie 2013. Hopefully, Carrie forever, because we've done so many versions of this goddamn movie. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Carrie 2013? You know, I want to save Matt for a second. Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. All right. I'll carry on with this review. Boom. One, you started this out by calling it Carrie Again, and that's how I titled this thing, was Carrie Again. And going into this... I was hoping to see something a little bit different, a little modernized, and we get some of that, and I appreciate that. I think we got a filmmaker who had a story to tell and wanted to tell it in her way. I don't think she got complete control, but I think she she did enough. I think Kimberly Pierce, I would love to see what would happen if she maybe wrote a little bit of it in that as well. She's no Brian De Palma, and I don't mean that to be dismissive, but De Palma sets such a fucking bar that it's almost unfair for anybody else to come and do one of these because that's what they're going to be measured against. Is this the best carry movie? No, not at all. Is it the second best carry movie? Yeah. I mean, it is the casting as Garrett, you mentioned, Matt mentioned, you know, it's pretty damn spot on. Chloe Grace Moretz plays Carrie differently, but is a good choice for Carrie. Julianne Moore is fucking astounding as Margaret White. She brings such a believability to the character that she brings every version of this character into one, but still makes it her own. The relationship between Sue and Chris is done really well. Tommy is fine, but not obnoxious. He's no cat. You know, what can I say? Believe it or not, he's no cat. 
But the rest of the movie, it does a good job. Yes, it's a rehash, but it is modernized. I think if you weren't comparing it, if we weren't comparing it, if I wasn't comparing it to the other one, it would be a little easier to go down. It's hard for me to not do that, especially seeing these in such close proximity to each other. But it's well done. The changes make sense. The update to today's day and age makes sense. And I like it for that reason. In the end, it's not going to stick with me. The way the original carry is, a lot of it is going to be fairly forgettable for a few scenes. But I enjoy it. It's fine. I have a feeling come months down the road, I'm going to be wishing for something like this again in this King Oeuvre. I'm going to give it a good, I'm going to give it a six. It's it's good. I, I got some issues with it, but it's a good flick. Wow. Six from the newbie to this retrospective. Matt, are you going to match Adam's score of a six? Before I answer that, let me say that I think your enjoyment of this movie is going to depend on whether or not you tamper your own personal expectations. If you're someone who is a slavish religious zealot of Brian De Palma like myself, (laughs) you're probably going to recognize this as an inferior product. And whether you want to or not, the the remake's inescapable. And in some ways, this is a good middle ground between a great remake and an absolutely atrocious remake, like the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, where, much like that version, this one takes a lot of the iconography and the structure, puts it in a modern setting, but the results here are much better, and they take advantage of the the Margaret White character being someone clearly with mental issues. And they take that to an extent in a way that they didn't take Freddy Krueger's update to the fullest extent. They tried, but it wasn't as effective. But unfortunately, I don't think this is a remake that 100% stands on its own. And it's a damn shame. You could blame that on the previous movies. You could blame that on just the fact that this story is so well known. It's sort of like the, I don't know, like the Goldilocks and the Three Bears of Horror. Everyone wants to do their own version, but everybody knows it. So I, I walked out of the theater the first time at a six. And to be honest, my opinion hasn't changed. I I think this is perfectly adequate, but it does not rise above that. It doesn't elevate above that, if you want to borrow Adam's shitty joke from earlier on this show. (laughs) I'll agree with Garrett. I don't know. I'm very tired. So I'm going to agree with Adam. I think I'm I'm on a six for this as well. If if you're like a 14-year-old girl, I'm sure you will like this movie quite a bit. But I will say, unlike the first one, which is a high school movie, but has some horrific elements. This one, I would not classify this as a horror movie whatsoever. Interesting. Well, in our previous review, I kept mentioning the Brian De Palma film because the 2002 movie is such a piss-poor excuse to try and replicate what was done before. Notice I hardly mentioned De Palma's version tonight because I think Pierce did a very nice job of making her movie as different as possible from what was done before. I think the performances here, despite a couple pretty bad miscasts, were great. I think what she does by making this a deeply personal story was fantastic. I love the outsider inverse of what she does with this story. I came into this knowing that I liked it before, but thinking, okay, since I just got through watching the other two, I guess three, movies with you guys, maybe I will come into this more skeptical. And I came out of this... I think even higher than I was before. I think for somebody like 
Adam's daughter, who was going to be watching this for the first time, I'm not sure if she could go with William Cat's haircut in that movie. I'm not sure if she could go with the stylings that go on in that movie. I don't think she can go with a 70s aesthetic. I think this is a perfectly adequate substitute for that 1976 movie. I think this is something that can replace that movie if you are, as Matt said, a 13, 14-year-old girl coming into this for the very first time. I think Moretz is adequate. I do think she's miscast. I would have liked to have seen, as Adam pointed out, and we've pointed out this entire retrospective, kind of more of King's vision. No, not Lindsay Lohan, but somebody who's overweight, somebody who has freckles, somebody who is actually the outcast that she is portrayed to be in that book. Moretz has star power. Moretz has a presence. Moretz has a previous confidence that does not disappear in this movie. Yeah, they dress her up in dowdy clothes. Yeah, she doesn't wear makeup, but she is still... A beautiful 16-year-old girl. That doesn't fly with me. I don't think she is a great carry. I do think this movie is borderline great, though. I think Julia Moore rises this material way high. She is astounding in this movie. I think Pierce does a pretty good job of directing this. I think the end carnage, despite my two colleagues, I think that's pretty great as well. There are a lot of things to like about this movie. I think the other girls are cast well because, again, I hadn't seen them before. And that brought an interesting aspect to this story. Maybe they'll be stars in the future, and we can look back on them like Nancy Allen became a star after Carrie. Maybe one of them will rise up like that, but I enjoyed them in this movie. As far as my score, I don't remember what I gave it when I reviewed it for the Amigos. I'm pretty sure I I was around a 6, but I want to go one higher. I want to give this a 7. This is not... 76, because I grew up on that movie, and I think that movie is just really good filmmaking. And I think what De Palma does with the split screen is very good. That that movie is just a great, great film. This movie's not great, but it's very good. And I think people were harsh on this because it was right at the end of a huge just slew of remakes that we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And I think people should give this another chance. I think this is a perfectly adequate 7 out of 10 film. All right, that does it for Carrie, boys. We are done with Carrie. Although, is Hollywood is Hollywood done with Carrie? Matt, do you think they will try this again? Uh, I don't want to say anything because every time I, I give a verdict, <laughs> we seem to will shit into existence. For stuff we want and things that we don't want. We have an amazing track record of that. So I, I, will, I will plead the fifth on that question. <laughs> Adam, you've gone through the story three times, four if you count the Rage Carry 2. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's anything else they could go with this? And did you actually enjoy these um, as much as you were expecting coming into this retrospective? You know what? I enjoyed going through them. I enjoyed seeing, you know, it's almost like looking at bullying through the decades and seeing how bullying has evolved yeah. as well. There's a lot to be told here. There's fertile ground. Has that ground completely been sown? Is there anything left in, t- in it? Well, Hollywood isn't one to Hollywood will do everything they can to draw blood from a stone even if that stone they're drawing blood from is Carrie I don't think we'll hit 2025 2027 without seeing another Carrie on the horizon I think we'll only be a few years away but I don't know I'd like them let it sit a little bit or find a way to drastically change it I just don't think you know it's not a big enough book that I think you can radically change or improve what's been done if you can't do it better just appreciate what you've gotten well We'll learn next year when we get Cujo and we, we got to go through Pet Cemetery and we have a lot of modernized remakes to go through as we're going through this retrospective. But uh, yeah, I'm with Adam. Just let this thing rest. I think it's been done damn near perfectly in 1976. I think this is perfectly adequate, but even I'm one to admit that this was completely unnecessary. It'll pass the time. 
But like, even like Adam said, you're not going to remember it. You know, it doesn't stay with you like the visions of SpaceX going down that stage and the end of that first one. It's just, just nothing about this that stays with you. But it passes the time if you're looking for a decent hour and a half horror film. All right, we're going to take a little break from King. We're going to um, hopefully do No Time to Die in this little interim. Fingers crossed that we're actually going to get to review that movie. This must be the highest anticipated retrospective we've ever done because we have sat on this goddamn movie for a fucking year now, over a year and a half. Hopefully we get to review that by the end of this year. We're going to go. I understand that King's next book is Salem's Lot. I and the um, the bosses here made the decision to make it The Shining next just because I think that movie has so many mm-hmm. layers to it. That series has so many layers to it. There are so many things to say about that, and it wouldn't be fair to not get that in by the end of the year. So we're going to take a little break from King, come back with The Shining, and I can guarantee you this, boys, and I can guarantee the audience this, there will be fights in that retrospective. Guarantee it. So stay tuned for that. Until we dive right back into King, you're going to go to your closet and listen to our podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. <laughs> the boys! test that will let me know how to help you better you're wasting your time just answer the statements true or false okay edited by garrett don't get all pissy i'm only trying to be nice you don't give a shit about carrie white and everybody knows it You're with me on this, right? Voice narration done by Adam. They're really good. We wouldn't give you a hard time if we didn't like you. We could have had them by the balls. I can see your dirty fellows. I like you. had those remakes you know we have prom night and and <laughs> stepfather stepfather yeah i mean sometimes they call what, what was the name of that one with um oh, when a stranger calls when a stranger calls yeah when a stranger calls these movies are they're all gonna laugh at you Look, I have been one of Lindsay Lohan's biggest offenders over the years i really have it wasn't until that dumb movie she did with paul schrader uh goddamn what was the name of that movie oh. matt i know you Fucking, uh, uh, that's not you, the name of it. I'm just... What's the name of the porn star? What's the porn star in it? What the fuck was the name of that movie? Oh, Candy. 
No. No, the canyons. The canyons, oh. yeah. It wasn't until she did the canyons, and I was like, you know what? This chick, there's no hope for this chick. They're all going to laugh at you! But this movie is told more from Sue and Chris's point of view, and I think that helps this narrative a lot. <laughs> let, let, let me begin. I laugh because this is going to have a literal punchline. As far as Sue goes... They're all going to laugh at you! So we go back to Margaret, who amongst her singing along with the religious songs in the... Who is amongst um, some singing along with the... God damn it. We go back to Margaret. They're all going to laugh at you! I was trying to think of, you know, is she is she just a cutter? Or is it such a deep religious affiliation that you have something like we saw in... Um, um, oh, God damn it. What's his book? Um, Tom Hanks gallivanting around the globe, you know, where we get Opus Day and things like that. Da Vinci Code? Yeah, we got the Da Vinci Code where you have... They're all going to laugh at you! I went with it either way, whether it was her punishing herself or just her way of dealing with the stresses when she was trying to normalize herself around people. Matt? Yeah, fuck. I just lost my train of thought. Um, I gotta adopt the king method of snorting coke on this show, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> or stop correcting Adam, will you? Will you stop correcting poor Adam? No. <laughs> you know what? It... They're all gonna laugh at you. Well, yeah. she does. She has a job in the movie as well, or I'm sorry, in the book as well. Um, hold on, my sister's calling. Let me deny that call. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she so um. <laughs> They're all gonna laugh at you. <laughs> all right. Sorry, go. I got. Sorry, I got Hellboy playing in the background. Hang on, let me mute it. <laughs> yes, the new one. All right. They're all gonna laugh at you. Carrie or not, these two are serial killers, fucking just waiting to happen. It seems. And Matt, I'm guessing you don't like that part. You know me so well. <laughs> I almost spit beer out of my fucking laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I feel empathetic, and that's a good thing to feel. I'm also kind of shocked that a teacher, you know, some of these teachers would dress this way to prom. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> Miss, Mart uh, Miss Fernandez, call me. There you prom. go. There you go. Oh, wow. I There's a name out of the hat. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're all going to laugh at you. Given that predicament, I think Adam's scenario he just pitched would have actually been a, been a smart change. This is why Matt is not a screenwriter. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> They're all going to laugh at you. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted.